Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. I have to admit that I love chopsticks in a kind of embarrassing and naive way. Like one mm-hmm. of my favorite things about uh, about eating several different kinds of Asian food is using chopsticks to eat them. I love like Chinese noodles with chopsticks. I love eating sushi with chopsticks, though sometimes I just eat sushi with my hands as as you often do. It's acceptable, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I love using chopsticks. I love it almost as much as I love the food itself. But I have found very strangely that I have a psychological block against using chopsticks on ethnic cuisines with which they do not originally uh, pair. So I love using chopsticks and I want any excuse to use them, but I've tried to eat spaghetti with them, with like (laughs) tomato basil sauce, and it does not work. It is psychologically revolting. But this is all ridiculous when you start getting into the the deeper history of uh, of any nation's cuisine. I mean, where do you think those uh, those noodles (laughs) in spaghetti, in Italian spaghetti came from? That's a good point. They came from the East. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, they they came from the land of chopsticks. And, of course, one of the things we're going to gonna get into in this episode is that, you know, there was a time before widespread chopstick usage uh, in uh, in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time before widespread uh, noodle and dumpling uh, consumption in Asia. And it's all part of the of the history of, of, of how we eat our food and what we eat. Right. So today's episode is going to be about chopstick technology. Right. Uh, so it Everyone, I think, is familiar with chopsticks. We don't have to really explain these too much. But uh, there's two of them. There's two of them. They're sticks. They're, they're sticks. Use your manual dexterity to uh, manipulate food with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they may be made out of uh, wood, uh, bamboo, or they may be made out of metal or ceramic, uh, plastic in some cases. Uh, but it's it's a pretty simple concept. And it, it does allow an amazing amount of precision. I, I remember... At an early age, I was really impressed by chopsticks, uh, in part because, uh, you know, we would go to little, little Chinese restaurants uh, in, the, in the States. And uh, when my family was living in, in Canada, one of my father's coworkers um, was a, uh, a Chinese-Canadian physician, and uh, he would use chopsticks, and he would uh, let us use chopsticks. And, and there was a story he told when he was a child, if he, was, if he misbehaved, his mother would dump a small bowl of uncooked rice out under the table uh, give him a pair of chopsticks, and then he would have to um, uh, move each grain of rice with the chopsticks uh, back into the bowl. That is amazing because that sounds like a punishment straight out of a fairy tale, doesn't it? <laughs> it that's, does, yeah. Th- that, that's like a fair, that's like a Cinderella type punishment. But chopsticks, they are exactly uh, the, the the tool you would want to use to uh, to carry out this task. I mean, they, they they're just so precise. They even beat. Uh, human fingers in many instances, if not in precision, then at least in tact, right? Uh, because it allows you um, to, uh, to, I mean, because so much of our our, our, uh, our use of utensils, it's about how do you uh, eat the food effectively, but also in a way that doesn't um, uh, insult the people that you're eating with. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, if you're eating hot food, uh, which has, you know, been popular in human culture, <laughs> um, it, 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 it behooves you to be able to handle that food without burning your fingers, and chopsticks allow you to do that. You know, when it comes to picking up individual grains of rice one at a time, I found out that there actually is a Guinness World Record category mm-hmm. for speed in picking up and eating individual grains of rice with chopsticks. Oh, wow. That's a that's a thing you can compete <laughs> in. So you can go the, like, number of hot dogs in a minute thing, or you can go the number of grains of rice in a minute thing. <laughs> um, and uh, apparently the current 
holder of this world record is somebody named Silvio Saba in uh, Milan, Italy, who was able to pick up and eat 25 individual grains of rice with chopsticks in one minute in February 2018, which actually that sounds kind of I feel like that record could be beaten. I'm just imagining it. <laughs> and maybe so. Maybe you're the, the 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 man to take up the chopsticks and give it a try. I mean, surely you could get down to like a second and a half per per rice grain, right? I don't know. Who are we to doubt uh, the Guinness Book of World Records, though, Joe? Yeah. Uh, now, one thing is, is certain, though. Uh, when I'm using chopsticks, I often think about – I mean, just always impress them. Like, these are great. And I do feel that temptation to want to use them on other foods. Mm-hmm. And really about the only foods – that, that I, when I think about it, that they don't make sense for uh, so much are foods that require a great deal of cutting and carving. Mm. Uh, you know, so I'm thinking like if you're eating a steak, uh, you would need a knife. Now, I guess you could you could use a knife and chopsticks, and that would uh, that would work. But uh, for the most part, chopsticks are gonna are gonna get you there with just about any food. You know, uh, when you mentioned pairing a knife with chopsticks, there at least once was a product called Fork and Knife Chopsticks. Have you seen this? <laughs> no. There's like a, a promo, obnoxious comedy promo video that used to go around the internet. Actually, it was a video where hilarity ensues when some Caucasian gentleman is trying to eat something with chopsticks. He just keeps dropping it all over himself, and it's like, oh, there must, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and the better way is that the other side of these chopsticks are a fork and a knife. Oh, so you can flip them around. See, at first I thought you meant that you're using them like chopsticks, but then it has a tiny fork and a tiny knife on the end. But this is just, <laughs> you flip them around. Okay. Uh, no, yeah, so it's stick party in front, fork and knife business in back. And actually okay. they would like, they would sort of hook together to make hinged chopsticks, which are not exactly traditional chopsticks. Okay, well, that's not the worst invention, I suppose. No, the the promo video is really obnoxious, but the invention is fine, though it looks like it's been discontinued or at least from the original seller as far as I could tell. Chopsticks themselves, however, of course, uh, are still very much in production. They have not been discontinued. There is no sign of chopsticks going away anytime soon. In Uh, fact, I think I read about a problem with billions of disposable chopsticks being used every year. Yeah, yeah. If anything, the the big take-home is if you like using chopsticks, if you find yourself regularly using chopsticks, invest in a in a, a set of chopsticks, uh, a mobile set that you can carry around and use at home and cut down on the uh, on the disposable chopsticks. Now, where did chopsticks come from? Well, they came from China. And uh, and uh, as, uh, as we were uh, talking about with our, uh, our researcher for this program, uh, Scott Benjamin, uh, they propped up prior to uh, 1200 BCE, though some sources say they've been around for nearly 9,000 years. But... Uh, this is uh, this is as cooking utensils, a way of moving ingredients around in a hot wok, for instance. But it, when it comes to uh, the use of chopsticks at the dinner table, or uh, you know, as a means of, of bringing food to your mouth, um, sometimes you see it uh, uh, stated that we're really looking at more uh, 400 CE as a as a as a as kind of a rough, very rough uh, time stamp for when it really began to become more popular and began to spread culturally the idea that these are utensils that should be used to consume food as well. Now, as we'll get into, this this is not a, a like a very this is not a super firm time stamp. It's not like you will not find people eating with chopsticks before that point, but this seems to be where the levy really breaks on the idea. 
People do like to come up with origin stories for things, though, mm-hmm. even when there isn't a clear origin story. Well, that's often part of the, the fun, right, is that there's not, a, there's not an actual inventor, but there's a mythic character that uh, had some sort of role in the invention, some sort of, uh, you know, cultural hero who stole fire from the gods, etc. Exactly. So we were both looking at a book. Robert, I think you actually read the whole book. Uh, what? Yeah, it's a, it's a short read, actually, something like 200 and something pages. Uh, it's a book by Q. Edward Wang that is called Chopsticks, A Cultural and Culinary History, published in 2015 from Cambridge University Press. And Wang points out that a common Chinese legend tells the story of how chopsticks were first invented by Da Yu, founder of the Xia Dynasty, which uh, ruled from 2100 to 1600 BCE. And uh, I've poked around for a couple of versions of this legend. Basically, the story goes like this. Da Yu was the figure uh, credited with fighting the great flood of Chinese history and mythology by the use of dredging in the riverbeds and construction of irrigation canals to divert water flow. Now, Robert, you've talked about uh, the Chinese great flood legends on podcasts before. Yeah, and, and Yu definitely comes up in, in that uh, episode because uh, he's, a, he's a true cultural hero in Chinese mythology. And the uh, if, if I am remembering correctly, the the knowledge to uh, uh, to to overcome the flood was was actually uh, stolen uh, or obtained from the gods, uh, I think by Yu's father, uh, and then Yu himself is the one who really brings it to the people. I think that's correct. But uh, so Yu eventually succeeds in defeating the Great Flood, and this made him emperor and founder of the Xia Dynasty. But there are lots of stories and legends about how much he sacrificed personally and how tirelessly he worked on this project uh, to to defeat the floodwaters. And one of these legends is that Dayu had, at one point, had some meat sizzling in a wok. Mm -hmm. But he was in such a hurry to fight the flood that he couldn't sit there and wait for the meat to cool down enough to handle and eat. So he got a pair of twigs and he used them to pick up the hot pieces of meat and hurry along his meal so he could get back to work. Ah. But clearly this is just a legend. But still, there it does illustrate like the basic clever idea, the, the novelty of using just some twigs, some sticks, but using them, uh, using just found objects, but using them in uh, an inventive way. Uh, that, that changes the the way you do things, and this is this is likely exactly how chopsticks emerged in just the 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 the, the darkness of prehistory. Uh, is the use of found twigs? Um, you know, maybe the twigs have been manipulated in some fashion, uh, but for the most part, just a couple of found sticks that are used to uh, manipulate food inside of a, a cooking pot, or also the use of fire sticks, which would just be. Uh, chopsticks that are used for uh, moving uh, burning wood or coal around. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I think is interesting about chopsticks that is different from the use of, say, a fork or a knife or even, I mean, s- sort of like a spoon but also somewhat diff- different from a spoon is that chopsticks in a way function sort of like extensions of the fingers. Yeah. You know, they do a similar pinching action that you can do with your thumb and index finger, mm-hmm. um, but they, you know, ex- they extend the fingers farther. They can handle hot stuff without getting grease on the fingers and all that. They can reach into soup and pull out noodles. They, they, they can do all that kind of stuff, but they 
in a way feel like a more natural extension of the the pinching grasping action of the skeleton itself mm-hmm. they feel like more like they emerge out of the schema of the human body than say a knife which you know you don't have a knife and you don't have any sharp fingers uh, you don't have a fork really there's no stabbing sharp tines on your hand there's just nothing analogous to a knife and a fork on your body. Yeah, I mean, it, this makes me realize that, and gra- granted, I, pro- I I definitely use fork and knife more than I use chopsticks, and I am not by any means a, you know, a, a, an expert practitioner with chopsticks, but I do feel like I am far more likely to bumble and drop a fork, knife, or spoon than I am to bumble and drop my chopsticks. Like, the, the chopsticks, to your point, are just more an extension of your body when you're using them. Now, obviously, if you're looking for ancient artifacts, ancient evidence of chopsticks, uh, just standard twigs aren't going to stick around very well, right? So you'd you'd be looking probably for chopsticks or indications that chopsticks were made out of other materials. Right. So, for for instance, um, you will find um, uh, like bronze chopsticks uh, or what are believed to be chopsticks in the tombs of of, the ruins of Yin in Henan province in central China. Because essentially what we're talking about here is a Neolithic invention. Uh, like you say, the, the twigs are not going to stick around. There is evidence that suggests uh, 5,000 BCE is a, is a possibility for early archaeological evidence of chopsticks. Though I've also read that, the, that some of these bone sticks uh, from this time and earlier may also be interpreted as hairpins or, or tools of another sort. Uh, but this is often a problem with like yes. Neolithic technology is – it's not quite so clear what you're really looking at. It might be clear that an artifact is not naturally occurring Mm -hmm. uh, and it was shaped in some way, but what was it used for? Not always clear. Because this is ultimately one of the the confounding things about chopsticks is that it is a relatively simple concept. Uh, You don't need anything beyond Neolithic technology to pull it off, and yet you don't see it uh, emerging independently in other cultures, uh, you know, ultimately, um, you just don't see it taking off everywhere. But it, but it is a, a, it's a cultural difference, and you see similar cultural differences in tool use among chimpanzees, for instance. Uh, nothing so grand as ch- as chopstick usage. You will not find chimpanzees uh, inventing the chopsticks, but you will see similar uh, a similar situation in things that are unessential behavior. Hmm. You do not have to invent the chopstick in order to eat and survive and develop all the other technologies that, uh, uh, that, that a culture may develop. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but it is curious how we, we see the chopsticks emerge in China and spread out from China, but they don't independently emerge uh, elsewhere. Now, as far as evidence that twigs were commonly used, just, you know, snapped off branches and twigs were commonly used for chopsticks, Wang in his book cites literary evidence from the ancient world that it was a common practice by, say, the 3rd or 4th century BCE to snap pieces off of the lower branches of a tree and use them for chopsticks. For example, he cites a passage from Junzi, who lived uh, 340 to 245 BCE, uh, and, and Junzi says this in service of illustrating an unrelated point. So he's just like sort of using an analogy here. But he says, if you look up at a forest from the foot of a hill, the bigger trees appear no taller than chopsticks. And yet no one hoping to find chopsticks is likely to go picking among them. It is simply that the height obscures their natural dimensions. So he's not really talking about chopsticks in this passage, but it just sort of makes passing reference to the fact that you might go, quote, picking chopsticks. So we have in this an an ancient 
tool, an ancient uh, utensil for the, the preparation of food. The question then is, how does it really leave the kitchen? How does it uh, go from being just something that you use in the production of food to becoming the, the primary uh, means of consuming said food? Uh, because, for instance, uh, you, many of us use a, a ladle in the kitchen, you know, or one of those, you know, those deep-seated uh, uh, spoons that, that, are, that are just for ladling out soup. You probably don't use one at the dinner table. You probably don't use it to drink soup. I eat with a spider strainer. <laughs> um, it, but that's, that's another example, yeah. You could technically do it, but you probably don't. Um, Speaking of spoons and soup, though, uh, Wang gets into this, and he points out that the spoon was actually the most important eating implement for people in ancient East and Southeast Asia. Uh, I can see that. I mean, the spoon is going to be common to pretty much every culture, right? Because it is essentially just a retaining receptacle. Yeah. I mean, it can move pretty much any kind of food. You could eat steak with a spoon. Right. Yeah, it's, I actually, if given the choice between a fork and a spoon, I rarely pick the fork. Right. I don't eat a lot of food that requires a stabbing fork anymore. Uh, so I'm, I'm more than happy with the spoon. Just give me the spoon. I, I don't even want to look at the fork. The, the, anything I can do with the fork, I can probably do with the spoon. And then, of course, I can do it even better with the chopsticks. But, um, but the spoon was the most important eating implement for, for people in ancient East and Southeast Asia. And this is backed up by both archaeological and textual accounts. And there are many reasons. Some of these we've just hit on here, just the, the ultimate practicality of the spoon. But, uh, but something else that uh, Wang points out is that from antiquity up to the 10th century, millet was the dominant grain cereal in North China, Korea, and uh, parts of Japan. And this uh, particular uh, substance is best cooked into a thick gruel that, de that demands the attention of spoons rather than any other form of utensil. And, and boiling is key here because this was the age of boiling. Uh, stews and soups, the, this is what you ate. Chopsticks, they, they crept in as merely a supporting utensil that you might use to like stir around the depths to grab a few things out of the depths of your soup or stew. But for the most part, you're going to have to depend on that spoon. By the 10th century, Wang writes, wheat becomes the primary grain. Hmm. And so you get wheat noodles, you get wheat dumplings, and then uh, chopsticks becoming extremely important because these are these make it far easier to manipulate those noodles or uh, or dumplings. If you've ever tried to eat especially noodles with a spoon, uh, but even a dumpling can become a, um, a a complete comedy of errors if you're because a dumpling can tend to be a little slippery and you're trying to like balance it on the spoon. No, you're better off grabbing it with the chopsticks. And then from the 11th century onward, he writes that rice, of course, becomes increasingly popular. Uh, and since rice clumps, chopsticks can be used to great effect with them. Oh yeah, and then and then in terms of uh, of boiling, well, by the third century, he writes that you by this point you had cooking oils thanks to the millstone that uh, that allows you to you know to break down the various seeds and whatnot that you're using uh, to create that uh, that frying oil. Uh, so yeah, you don't have to boil all of your ingredients; you can fry them, and this means more reliance on bite-sized ingredients rather than you know giant uh, you know bones and meat that are dropped in with your vegetables for the stew. Yeah, and though, of course, not all, say, Chinese cooking is the stir fries we're familiar with or whatever, mm -hmm. that is one common feature of many Chinese recipes is um, things, you know, not a big hunk of meat on the plate, but things sliced into bite-sized pieces. And the other thing about bite-sized pieces is that they is that they cook faster. Yeah. They require less fuel. This becomes more and more important, uh, many commentators uh, uh, touch upon, 
as uh, as fuel becomes uh, a, an issue. Right. Uh, in Chinese civilization, there were points where suddenly like firewood is mm-hmm. more expensive, harder to come by. Yeah. So what are you going to cook? Are you going to cook a giant slab of meat or are you going to cook little slivers of meat? Uh, that have been prepared, of course, in the kitchen and then uh, and then uh, and then then fried up. And you can manipulate them with your chopsticks uh, while they're cooking. And then, of course, when it comes time to eat, it is also the perfect implement uh, to employ. Wang also points out that in pre-modern times, chopsticks also cut down on the risk of germs in communal eating. Oh, that's a good point. Which is an interesting point. So, yeah. yeah, if people are, say, picking dumplings out of a shared dish, you don't have to reach in there with your dirty hands. You can pluck them out precisely with chopsticks. Now, it's important to note in all of this that, we again, we can't simply say that people created chopsticks in this age or that they began to actually eat with them in another age. Uh, there's a lot of gradual change going on here. And there are some notable ancient accounts, uh, accounts or legends or myths, uh, what have you, of eating with chopsticks. And that's where we have to... Uh, to discuss the, the, the lavish lifestyle of uh, King Zhou of the Shang Dynasty. Uh, he would have lived uh, 1075 through 1046 BCE. Okay, take me there. Take me to this ancient binge. He's best remembered as, uh, what's the term? Uh, party animal? Yeah, definitely a party animal. <laughs> a real... Um, a Bluto? <laughs> a real Bluto. Yeah, he, uh, he loved his, uh, his food. He loved the flesh. And, uh, and, and so we have to keep that in mind that, like, how much of this is accurate? How much of this is an, is an actual ruler who w- who had a decadent lifestyle? And how much of this is, of course, just attributed to somebody who fell out of uh, the good graces of history? But so, okay, if he's if he's a party animal, does he party with chopsticks? He does. Uh, he was said to have always eaten with an ornate pair of ivory chopsticks. Whoa. And he wouldn't. It was it was strongly stressed that he wouldn't eat out of just earthenware um, bowls like the rest of uh, the people. No, he would only eat from bowls of jade and rhino horn. Oh, rhino horn! Now we've talked before on a different show on stuff to blow your mind about ancient beliefs concerning the powers of the rhino horn, especially as it concerned people who were uh, concerned with being poisoned, like royalty. Right. Yeah. And then jade, of course, also has magical properties in. Uh, in Chinese tradition. So uh, it makes sense that uh, that he would only eat from these because they would have been rep- uh, reputed to have some sort of uh, focus on fu- food uh, purification and poison uh, prevention. Uh, and ivory chopsticks would later go on to become a symbol of, of decadent life and corrupt politics. But it went far beyond that with, uh, with King Zhou. Uh, he's said to have had his own, quote, alcohol pool and meat forest. <laughs> They stole the name of my restaurant. <laughs> I can't open it now. It does remind me of some of these more decadent uh, steak restaurants, you know, where they bring around like skewers of meat. Mm-hmm. Because uh, this is described as essentially a lake of wine. And you would uh, boat around in it, you know, with your concubines and, uh, and, and your pals. And as you're boating around, drinking from the wine lake, you would also pluck cuts of meat from the roasting pillars that are around you like a forest. This is like a satanic Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> it you is. Know? It's, this, it's this like unholy version of the chocolate rivers. He is also said to have delighted in eating, quote, the meat of long-haired buffaloes and unborn leopards. I have no comment on that. Well, it's just it's a decadent. Uh, diet to have, you know, only the the weirdest and the strangest. It's like uh, uh, Monty Burns on The Simpsons uh, wanting to, to wear the, the pelts of various exotic and endangered animals. Oh, yeah. See, see my vest. Yes, yes. 
chopstick etiquette time. <laughs> we just got to have that jump in and invade whatever we were talking about. Right. Just it, it will probably upset most people if you're eating uh, unborn leopards, but also uh, a point of etiquette here, never point your chopsticks at someone. Really? Yeah. Like if you're, you know, brandishing them at the table, you know, keep them the keep the direction down toward the food. Uh, that's generally advised. And also, uh, never stick your chopsticks upright in a bowl of rice as this is a portent of death. Yes, I've heard that this is because uh, chopsticks set upright in a bowl of rice can resemble sticks of incense or chopsticks that are set upright in rice in funeral ceremonies. Oh, this makes sense. This is, but this is something that would be very easy to miss uh, for, uh, say, a Westerner traveling in China, uh, which is why you see it cited in a lot of travel books. Do yeah. not do this. This is an easy thing that you cannot do and save yourself some grief. I always wonder about that kind of stuff when you see uh, etiquette cited in books for travelers. It's mm -hmm. like, is this a real rule or not? I feel like when you read those things, you've got to be reading some real common etiquette guidelines mixed in with things that people just made up. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on the uh, the faux pas they're warning you against. Uh, because some of them are more widespread and more uh, central to a given culture. Like I instantly think of uh, various taboos concerning shoes in Thailand. Uh, uh, you know, si if you're seated so that your your shoes are pointed against somebody, or uh, or certainly any kind of situation where your your shoes are placed, uh, say, in a bin at an airport with other belongings. But we need to save that for our uh, episode on the invention of shoes. <laughs> uh, at this point, we should probably take a break. And when we come back, we are going to discuss even more about the invention uh, of chopsticks and just the, the spread, the, the, the spread of this cultural idea that this is how one should eat one's food. All right, we're back. Robert, divulge to me the wisdom of the great Confucius as it concerns Utensil etiquette. Yes, uh, this is this is interesting because this is where we find the connection between the, the great Chinese teacher, politician, and philosopher Confucius uh, and chopsticks. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I was just watching. Uh, I just finally began to watch Michael Woods' The Story of China, which is a, a fabulous documentary. He's done a couple of these before: one on India, one on England. Uh, and some other documentary features as well. But this is like, a, I want to say it's like an eight-part documentary look at the the history of China mm -hmm. and Chinese culture. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's re really good. You can find it on, I think, Amazon Prime currently, and it's also uh, on PBS in America. Um, but uh, the, the first episode does a, a wonderful job of breaking it down just how a, a political core Confucian teachings really were, um, hmm. governing the, uh, about how, you know, you govern the moral character of a people via the ruler. So the the ruler and, and, and his morals, they're the wind to the people's field of grass, dictating the nature of the people. Uh, now, Confucius lived 551 through 479 BCE. Uh, a time during which we see the emergence of so many new ideas concerning human culture and and the human condition. Uh, he's known outside of China as Confucius because this is the Latinization of Kong Fuzi, aka Master Kong. Hmm. Uh, and and we can we can hardly summarize his teachings here on the show, but but he believed that through study, uh, morality and virtue could win out over violence and tyranny. Uh, ruling by example is better than ruling by law and punishment alone. Uh, his teachings, however, would only come to, to widely influence Chinese uh, rule and culture after his death. 
But his teachings did spread, and uh, it seems so too did his ideas on eating utensils. Uh, he championed blunt chopsticks over the use of knives, and is quoted uh, as having believed that, quote, the honorable and upright man keeps well away from both the slaughterhouse and the kitchen, <laughs> and he allows no knives at his table. Now, it's unknown to, uh, to what extent this impacted the actual use of meat in Chinese cuisine, but perhaps due in part as well to uh, Buddhist influence, one sees uh, meat uh, used more for flavor, uh, flavoring, you know, the uh, broth, flavoring vegetables uh, by around the first century. This is really interesting because the thoughts of Confucius here actually remind me of something I read years ago about mm -hmm. chopsticks that has been lodged in my brain ever since. And I think it might be part of my love relationship with chopsticks, why I'm always looking for an excuse to use them. They feel morally good to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like something about using chopsticks isn't just aesthetically pleasing. It, it feels virtuous. I know that's, that sounds quite silly, but uh, – I think one origin of this association in my mind is that when I was in college, I read a book called Empire of Signs by the French critic and semiotician Roland Barthes. It was first published in 1970 and then in English translation by Richard Howard in the early 1980s. And it's kind of a semiotic travelogue of Japan. And I honestly, I don't think I'd actually vouch for Barth as a very good observer of other cultures in general, even for his time. And I think you could argue that there are traces of kind of Orientalism in his thoughts mm -hmm. uh, about Asia. Apparently, he was somewhat dismissive of the value of studying Chinese culture. But I read this book many years ago, and Barth's thoughts about chopsticks always stuck with me as kind of more interesting and perhaps more valid than a lot of the rest. So here's some of what he says about chopsticks. Uh, and this is abridged selections from his book Empire of Signs. Quote, the instrument never pierces, cuts, or slits, never wounds, but only selects, turns, shifts. For the chopsticks, in order to divide, must separate, part, peck, instead of cutting and piercing, in the manner of our implements. They never violate the foodstuff. Either they gradually unravel it in the case of vegetables or else prod it into separate pieces in the case of fish, eels, thereby rediscovering the natural fissures of the substance. Huh. He also writes, by chopsticks, food becomes no longer a prey to which one does violence, meat, flesh over which one does battle, but a substance harmoniously transferred. And then he says finally of people who use chopsticks to eat, Maternal, they tirelessly perform the gesture which creates the mouthful, leaving to our alimentary manners armed with pikes and knives that of predation. Oh, well, that's beautiful. I like that comparison. It mm -hmm. somehow rings true to me. I mean, it may be uh, an overgeneralization of the differences between the two eating cultures, uh, you know, Europeans, fork and knife culture on one hand and, and Japanese chopstick culture on the other hand. But I really feel like there's something – Something to what he's saying about the fact that when eating with chopsticks, one does not make artificial cuts mm. in the meat or in, in the food in general as it is presented to you. It's, you know, it may have been cut already in the preparation, but any separations of the foodstuffs happen along natural lines of separation. So I can think about like if you have a 
you know, a stir fried little head of baby bok choy on your plate Mm -hmm. and you're eating with chopsticks, the leaves come away whole as you peel them off or, uh, or yeah, the fish flakes along the natural uh, lines of its muscles. I have to say with bok choy, I'm more inclined to try and grab the whole thing with the chopsticks and shove it into my mouth, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, an important point to make here. We, We talk a lot about the precision of the chopsticks and maybe the brutal aspects of fork, knife, and spoon. Um, but I, I, we do need to remind everyone that you can still eat like an utter slob while using chopsticks. It's well within, uh, within range for, uh, for, for, uh, for human uh, behavior. Oh, yeah. I would often say even when you observe uh, Chinese people eating, mm-hmm. they often will say um, bring the bowl up to near their face as they eat with chopsticks and there's kind of like this beautiful shoveling action yeah. that uh, that I think I think it might be a sort of trad- – I don't know what's actually etiquette and what's not. I mean I feel like Western tradition would say you don't hold the bowl up near your face. Well, this gets into too – sometimes you hear it uh, put forth that it's okay to slurp, like slurping the soup in, um, in, in certain Eastern traditions is a compliment to the chef, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I actually did have the experience once of getting noodles at a, at a – Chinese noodle shop in uh, this was in Honolulu, I think. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was predominantly uh, uh, Chinese uh, clientele, and I was trying to eat, uh, consume the the noodles, uh, you know, carefully. And uh, and uh, there was actually an older woman uh, there, a, a Chinese woman who turned to me and basically let me know it's okay to slurp, it's okay to bring the bowl up to your face. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is all right. That's beautiful. Yeah. But anyway, back to Confucius and to Barth, in both cases, there seems to be – there's this idea that the method we use to get food from the plate into our mouths does have some kind of psychological conditioning effect. Mm -hmm. And I I can't cite research to say that this is definitely true, but it certainly feels true. It at least – it seems to make plausible sense and I feel it myself when I'm eating. I I feel a different kind of – uh, effect on my mind when I eat with chopsticks versus when I cut with a fork and knife. On some level, anytime I, I'm using a fork and knife to eat, I am picturing uh, like a, a, a scene from a medieval uh, motion picture, a motion picture set in medieval times, not one made during the Middle Ages, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some scene of some brutal lord carving up his uh, food while hounds uh, feast on the bones beneath the table. Right. Uh, like I'm somehow empl- employing that scene in my mind, but both negatively but also positively, positively because there's something kind of awesome about that scenario too. And then when I eat with chopsticks, there is something bird-like. Like I, I'm on some level, I'm imagining that I am uh, being fed by a bird puppet. Well, for me, fork and knife feels more um, mechanical, artificial, and architectural, and chopsticks feel more uh, organic and uh, related to the, the forms of the natural world. Again, they are more like the extensions of your skeleton. Yeah. But it also, as we were saying, uh, coincides with differences in in common preparation methods in, say, uh, many European traditions of cooking versus East Asian traditions of cooking where very often, though not always, very often in, say, Chinese cooking, ingredients are sliced or cut up in advance. Yeah, and in this we come back to that idea that Scarce resources and a growing population in China demanded that smaller portions of food be cooked faster over less fuel. Um, thus, chopsticks are an ideal way to consume the finished dish as well. Yeah. Um, though one of the points that Wang makes in his book is that 
you know, technically, you know, certainly there are a number of key advantages to cooking food. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've touched on that in Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. Um, it is the externalization of digestion in many re- respects. But at the same time, do you have to eat it hot? Can, uh, you know, can't you just wait until it's uh, room temperature again and then you can eat it with your fingers? Uh, we often insist on eating it hot. We end up preferring warmer hot food. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some research on why we prefer hot food, right? Hmm. Is there? Well, that sounds like something we should say for a future episode on the invention of the hot bar. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, in terms of like eating with your fingers, though, uh, he uh, Wang summarizes in his book, again, Chopsticks of Cultural and Culinary History, uh, that we see the shift from fingers to utensils between 500 and 1,000 BCE. And then we see spoons and chopsticks used as an, ex- an established set of eating tools uh, in China between 300 and 600 CE. So at this, this is the point where it becomes clear that if you're going to eat, you're probably going to need that spoon because there are going to continue to be soups and broths and whatnot. Uh, but, on the, uh, but on the other side of the plate, you're going to want those chopsticks because that is going to be how you're going to consume all of these finer pieces. Yeah, chopsticks and spoon. They are the buddy cop movie of my mouth. All right, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the legacy of chopsticks. All right, we're back. Okay, Robert, we mentioned a little bit about uh, random bits of chopsticks etiquette before. Uh, one thing we should point out is that there are definitely some regional variations on mm-hmm. chopstick etiquette. You know, the, the rules aren't the same everywhere you go. But some common examples that I've found reading about chopstick etiquette around the world would be one big one is you don't stab a food with the tip tip of chopsticks. Oh, Apparently yes. that is just – that's not cool. Yeah, that's one you have to – you have to – really break down for a child uh, of when I was when my own son was learning how to use chopsticks I mean that's you, you you want to use them like the adults are using them but it's difficult at first and the first thing that comes to their mind is well I can just use this to stab my dumplings instead mm-hmm. and you have to say no do not stab the dumplings with that stick it's like licking a knife you just you know it just <laughs> looks it looks brutal and weird yeah except when Dracula does it you know, when Gary Oldman licks the razor blade. Oh, Gary Oldman can make anything look cool. Uh, but, hey, here's another one. I, I read this in several places, and I wonder how common this rule of etiquette actually is. But what I have read in several places is something about Chinese chopstick etiquette. And it chilled me because I know I violated this. I have done it. You know how sometimes you're eating a good bowl of some kind of stir-fried delight? Maybe it's some kind of noodle dish or some fried rice or just some kind of stir-fry. And you might be searching around in your dish for that one delicious thing, that big piece of black fungus or that one last shrimp or Mm -hmm. something like that. Apparently, digging around with chopsticks in search of something can be seen as bad manners and (laughs) is something referred to as, quote, grave digging or digging your grave. Huh. Well, on one hand, this seems like it's a a rule against over-utilizing the freedom of the utensil. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it also makes sense if you're thinking about a more communal um, uh, eating scenario. Right. Where you're sharing one big bowl or one hot pot, etc. It it's cheating for you to go digging around and getting all the choice pieces of protein out before Mm -hmm. anyone else can have a shot at them. Exactly. And also, I don't know if this is the reason, but 
I have to wonder if part of it is that it could be considered insulting to the host or the cook, right? Implying mm -hmm. that the dish only has a limited amount of the good stuff and there's not enough of it and you want to dig around to find all of that. Again, it's the very thing you warn a child not to do. Don't just, don't just eat the shrimp, eat the vegetables too. Mm -hmm. For the child's own good, but also so as not to insult the host, right? Right. Because if you're just digging out the shrimp, the, the implication is, why didn't you just give me a bowl full of shrimp? <laughs> well, that makes sense. This makes sense as well. Uh, but also another piece of etiquette that we can all take, take with us. Because sometimes it is hard to resist. Uh, if, if, again, for that link, choice – uh, that choice delicious shrimp uh, in there in the noodles. Well, I find myself maybe, – maybe this is bad manners in general, but I find myself when using chopsticks especially uh, just trying to compose perfect little mouthfuls of things. Like I want to get everything lined mm -hmm. up together like a little bit of – uh, a little bit of the carbohydrate element, a little bit of the vegetable, a little bit of the meat or whatever and have that all just arranged just right before I shovel. Oh, yeah. And then if you're like me, you run the risk of, of it slipping. This is my, my possible interpretation here is that sometimes we try and treat, treat the chopsticks as a fork. Because mm -hmm. with a fork, yeah, you can just go stab, 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 and you get your little uh, you know, taste sensation of four different elements lined up. The one-bite buffet. Right. But with chopsticks, it, sometimes when I try and do that, uh, it, there's, it, it can be uh, an act of folly because ultimately maybe I should be eating it piece by piece in a more chopsticks-friendly uh, manner. You know, one thing I've noticed uh, when I watch uh, – I watch a decent amount of uh, cooking videos with, uh, you know, actual chefs in the Asian tradition. So like Japanese chefs, Chinese chefs. And a lot of times I see them using chopsticks still in cooking. We mentioned that they originally played a big role in cooking, but I see this still happening. They're like chopsticks yeah. used in a wok, chopsticks used for, say, uh, tempura frying – yeah, and then uh, you will also see with with modern uh, you know gourmet chefs. Anyone who's ever watched uh, you know some sort of a Netflix uh, cooking show has has seen these gourmet chefs using tweezers, but in some cases chopsticks uh, to carefully align uh, the food on the plate and you know, make sure everything's positioned just right. Um, like that's essentially the same principle. I mean, what are tweezers but uh, less proper? chopsticks. Have you ever seen our coworker Dylan Fagan eating Cheetos out of a bag with chopsticks? No, I haven't noticed this. Genius. Yes. Doesn't get any Cheeto dust on his fingers. He'll have the little bag there and he's going at it with chopsticks and it's so cute. And I think it's 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 culturally appropriate cuz uh, cuz cuz Cheetos are a, a snack with no nation. They're they're completely <laughs> honorless. Uh, so it's okay to use chopsticks. If anything, you you run the risk of offending chopsticks. Now, a big part of chopstick culture in the world today is that we've got tons of disposable chopsticks. Uh, chopstick, disposable chopsticks are being used all the time. And I am, I am a big fan of reusable chopsticks. But I also admit I frequently use the disposable ones and feel bad about how many I've probably sent to the landfill in my lifetime. Yeah, some of the, uh, uh, the, the research that was uh, provided for us uh, from Scott Benjamin on this, uh, he points out that uh, disposable sets, uh, typically bamboo, uh, weren't really created until the 1800s, uh, and, uh, and, and this was uh, largely a Japanese creation. And today, uh, disposable chopsticks are a bit of a problem. In Japan alone, around 24 billion pair 
are used each year, about 200 pairs per person each year. That's a lot of waste. Yeah. Uh, But then again, uh, lest uh, Western listeners be too judgmental on this fact, I just remind everyone to think about your disposable straw usage. Think about your disposable fork, knife, spoon, and spork usage. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think these are all... uh, part of the same problem. Oh, absolutely. No no reason to single out Japan here. Now, um, speaking of Japan, it's also pointed out that uh, chopsticks uh, were historically longer for men and shorter for women, eight inches for men, seven inches for women. And uh, the the actual size of chopsticks varies now, and it seems that there's no standard length for any one country. Another pro chopsticks fact, uh, the blunt shape of chopsticks also makes them uh, easier on lacquer-covered ornate cookware. Uh, again, you're not going to be stabbing and slicing uh, with fork and knife on it. You're going to be uh, more politely poking at them with uh, pieces of wood or in some cases, of course, pieces of metal. Hmm. Now, speaking of uh, the materials used in chopsticks, uh, in uh, Korea, metal chopsticks have uh, have become the standard. But you'll also find various other uh, uh, substances, uh, both uh, currently and in the past, bamboo, plastic, wood, bone, uh, stainless steel, uh, uh, as, as well as uh, for the wealthy, titanium, gold, silver, again, porcelain, jade, ivory. Uh, gold it, chopsticks? <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, and it also uh, was once believed that chopsticks made of silver would corrode and turn black if the food was poisoned. Oh, so this sounds like it's along the lines of uh, the rhino horn and mm-hmm. jade. However, of course, this is not true. Uh, silver, silver will not react to arsenic or cyanide, but it will react to garlic, onions, and rotten eggs. Uh, th- <laughs> these are all things that uh, produce hydrogen sulfide, which does turn silver black. Now, a few other uh, little uh, tidbits uh, about uh, chopstick use. Um, Wang points out in his book that uh, you had uh, the chopstick diet. Japanese English author uh, Kimiko Barber argued in her 2009 book, The Chopstick's Diet, that using chopsticks is healthier because it forces you to slow down and savor and think about your food. I don't know if it's actually healthier, but it does certainly force me to slow down and, and savor food more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, it's presented, uh, Wang presented it as uh, something to think about, uh-huh. not necessarily fact. Uh, he also points out, uh, in fact, he points out several times this idea of the chopsticks cultural sphere. Uh, this was a, uh, a, a term coined by Japanese writer uh, Ishiki Hashiro, and uh, he argued that chopsticks require enhanced brain coordination, and that this improves not only dexterity but also brain development, especially in children. Now, uh, Wang uh, points out that scientists have produced, quote, positive results on both fronts, uh, but uh, that also lifetime chopsticks use uh, might result in higher risk for uh, osteoarthritis in hand joints among the elderly. Uh, more work is required in both areas, though, and, and perhaps this is something that we could follow up with uh, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the future. Yes, I'd definitely be interested in that, especially given what we talked about earlier, that I, at least firsthand experience really makes me feel like chopsticks are doing something to my brain. Mm-hmm. So it feels like something different is happening to my mind when I use them as opposed to fork and knife. Now, chopsticks also show up in another interesting place uh, in a now semi-famous paper 
that is about the dangers of not understanding your sample correctly if you're a scientist and you're doing something like genetics testing. And it's a principle known as population stratification or population admixture that was discussed in a 2000 paper by Hamer and Sirota called Beware the Chopsticks Gene in the Nature publication Molecular Psychiatry. Now, the authors of this paper tell a story to illustrate how scientists can possibly be misled in genetics research if they're not careful. And the story goes like this. So, Robert, once upon a time, there was an ethnogeneticist who was looking for a subject to study. And he decided he would like to figure out why certain people eat with chopsticks and others don't. So he rounded up a few hundred university students and he gave them questionnaires to find out how often they use chopsticks. And then he took cheek swabs to get DNA samples from each of them. So his lab ran DNA analysis and cross-referenced the responses to the questionnaire with the DNA and found a huge correlation between one particular genetic marker right in the middle of a region previously linked to other behavioral traits and the use of chopsticks. And so then this experiment was replicated. It was performed at several other universities, and they all got the same result. So the original ethnogeneticist, he celebrates, he decides it's time to call up the media and tell them, I've found the chopsticks gene. It is a gene that makes people prone to eat with chopsticks. And this, again, is correlation. And as, as we frequently point out, is that one of the, the golden rules of science is that correlation is not necessarily causation. Right. Anything that is causation should be correlated, but there are lots of things that mm -hmm. are correlated that don't have a causal relationship with each other. And this could very well be one of those examples because in this uh, story, unfortunately, the geneticist discovers only several years later that this particular gene is actually a histocompatibility antigen gene that has nothing to do with dining utensils, but it just happens to be an allele that's more common in people with recent Asian ancestry than with other ethnic groups. So the point is to illustrate that you could find a gene associated with a trait the level of statistical correlation can be highly significant, and the test can be replicated many times, and it's still possible that your results are biologically meaningless. This gene has nothing to do with how you use your hands or what kind of utensils you favor. It happens to be more common in a population who uses chopsticks more often for cultural reasons. It's a complete accident of culture, and it highlights a general problem with studying populations. If you don't understand and consider the population you're studying, it's possible to draw spurious correlations. Using similar naive logic, you could probably find a French accent gene <laughs> or a support for Russia's World Cup team gene. <laughs> you know, this, uh, this does remind me um, of an early experience taking my, my son uh, to a Chinese restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife and I were there uh, uh, with him, and, uh, and he did not know how to use chopsticks at the time. Uh, he's, now he's six years old and, and uses them uh, uh, extremely well. Uh, but when we first took him, took him to this Chinese restaurant, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the owner of the restaurant came around. He was saying hi. And, uh, and of course, he noted that, uh, that my son is, uh, is ethnically uh, Han Chinese. And he, he said, he pointed out to us, he said, don't let him use the, the cheating chopsticks, you know, ones where you the take a rubber band kind. or a hinge. He says, don't let him use those. Let him just figure it out because he has it in his DNA. <laughs> Well, that's kind of a sweet story. But yeah, it operates on exactly the same principle, mm -hmm. assuming that things that are actually just 
accidents of culture and history are somehow in the body, that there's something in the body that makes you that way. Right. When really it is just a, it is a, it is cultural information. It's a cultural, it's cultural knowledge that is passed on. And, uh, and in the case of learning how to use chopsticks, uh, I will say that his, his advice was, I think, act, act completely sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son used, learned to use chopsticks uh, not by cheating and using some sort of a rubber band uh, and a piece of paper rolled up. Uh, he used them by watching adults use them, uh, imitating what they were doing, using them you know, poorly – for a while, and then using them with competence. As an adult, I'm pretty good with chopsticks, but I did start using them at a slightly later age. I wonder if I'd started using them at an earlier age when I still had that neuroplasticity window mm. open, you know, if I'd started using them as early as I used a fork, if if they'd feel more like an extension of my hand, just kind of this perfectly intuitive part of my body. Well, we could easily come back to a, a, a lot of this. There's a lot of, of food left on the table, if you will, mm-hmm. um, uh, because in, indeed, like how uh, if you start earlier with chopsticks, are you in, in fact more skilled with them? And then there's the the question of uh, you know why isn't chopsticks usage part of one's DNA? Uh, like how long does something have to be around in human culture before it is part of our human genetic legacy? And then to what extent does does cultural knowledge uh, uh, make genetic uh, information uh, less important. Oh, well, you can certainly make that argument. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a, a big thing about what culture is is that culture is a great substitute for instinct. Yeah. You know, you don't need quite so many inborn instincts that are hardwired into the brain if you have children who are born as learning machines and adults who can teach them what to do. Yeah, a and, lesson is learned by the individual in months, whereas it would be learned by the species uh, across, what, a million years. Yeah. And I like that about us. I like that uh, it's fun being a human because you can grow up learning to use fork and knife or you can grow up learning to use chopsticks. You know, the brain works either way. If we were some kind of lizard that just had like a hardwired fork and knife nervous system and chopsticks would never make sense to us, that would be a tragedy. It would. It would. It would be be a world without all these fabulous inventions, including chopsticks. All right, so there you have it, another episode of Invention. Uh, We can file that one away. And if you want to check out the files, if you want to see other episodes of the show, uh, head on over to inventionpod.com. That is our website. You'll find the other episodes as well as links out to our social media accounts. And if you want to discuss the show with other listeners, uh, we would recommend going to Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's a Facebook group where, you know, mostly we've talked about episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but we are also happy to discuss episodes of Invention there as well well. Huge thanks to our friend Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this show and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, suggest a topic for the future of invention, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show. You can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 